Good morning. Man, again, uh, a special welcome to those of you who are guests with us this morning. Uh, so, so thrilled that you chose to come and spend some of your morning here um, with us. And, um, you know, while I'm at it, a special thank you to those of you who so tirelessly and faithfully volunteered to help serve um, at this church, whether it's the parking attendants who helped you find your spot, and whether it's the greeters who welcomed you with a smile as you entered in, or those who are taking the offering right now, the band that just beautifully led us. There's an army of you serving in Kids Point. In fact, thank you to those of you who just came back um, from serving in Kids Point this last hour. It's so grateful for you. Uh, the church grows and builds itself up in love because of you and your um, part in this ministry. We are in uh, the middle of a study um, in the book of Ephesians. And um, in this study, we are asking the question, what does God say is most true about us? As we've seen over the last number of weeks, what we believe to be most true about us, not what we say, but what we believe to be most true about us has a profound bearing on our disposition, our decisions, our direction, and in so many ways, our life destinations. If you believe something about you that may have been falsely spoken over you, that will have profound bearing on you. If you miss out on something that is true about you that you don't get to lean into, then you get to miss out on beautiful experiences and realities that could be yours. And so we're asking the question, the most important question, what does God say is true about us? Because whatever God says is true about us is what we want to believe, what we want to lean into, what we want to have influencing our decisions, our dispositions, our direction. And in many ways, our destination in life. And uh, so over the last number of weeks, as we've been looking through the book of Ephesians, we've been discovering some stunning truths, some stunning things God says are true about us. A number of weeks ago, we saw that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. In other words, we have every supply our souls could ever possibly crave And that supply is already ours. That's amazing. Uh, We saw that we are chosen, meaning before the creation of the world, God handpicked us ahead of time, which means it can never be said about you that you are unwanted. God vetoed that in his selection of you to be a part of his family. We saw the truth that we are redeemed, which means sin no longer has any power over me. And it means God is no longer holding any sin over my head. We might struggle to catch up with that truth, but what a powerful truth It is nonetheless. And last week we started to speak about the Holy Spirit and the amazing reality that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is resident in you. And if nothing else, that means that regardless of where we may be, regardless of what dark places we might go through, God is going to get us home. He sent himself to live in us to ensure that we got home to him. Some amazing truths and realities that we want to influence our lives. And this morning, we want to continue 
our journey of discovery. And um, last week when we left off, Paul was sharing with the Ephesians this prayer that he's been persistently praying for them. And he tells them, I've been asking that the Holy Spirit would enable you to for real encounter your God. I'm not talking about knowing or memorizing more facts about him. I'm praying that he would allow you to really encounter and experience your God. And he said, and I'm also praying, by the way, that all of these spiritual blessings, all of these realities that are yours, that you would for real enjoy them. That they would go so much further than just theory, things we talk and study about, but that you would actually enjoy these spiritual resources that are yours. I keep praying that the king's spoiled kids would not live like impoverished orphans when all of heaven's riches are theirs, as unfortunately so many of us often do. And it's in the middle of Paul telling them what he's praying that he introduces us to a new reality, a new truth that he wants the church to become entirely convinced of. A truth that he wants us to know and experience with our lives. If you have a copy um, of the scriptures, join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. We are going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 18. And we're actually going to look at the section of scripture that goes all the way to the end of the chapter in verse number 23. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. And this is what Paul says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, experientially know, the hope to which he has called you. These riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. Let's pause there for a quick second because that statement there in verse 19 is the gist of the truth that we want to spend some time reveling in this Morning, And and let me just give it to you up front uh, so you can get a sense of what it is Paul is saying and and what he's going to spend some time expounding on. And we're going to put this up here on the screen. Here's what he's saying at the beginning of verse 19. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, then as we sang a few moments ago, the power that raised him from the dead is yours. That will alter your life. I'm telling you right now. If you believe that to be true, that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is yours. The power that resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ is at work in and is available to you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul is far from content with just telling us that this power is ours. He wants us to be once again entirely mesmerized by this truth. And so he takes the rest of the chapter to explain just the kind of power he's claiming is 
hours. So let's look at what he says in the rest of this passage, and then we'll talk about it. Starting at verse 19. And this incomparably power, incomparably great power, he says, for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. That's us, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It is almost comical to see how deep the Apostle Paul reaches to try and find word to stack upon word to pile upon simile to pile upon superlative to somehow reach the heights of the definition of this power he's trying to convince us is ours. It is very amusing. And in fact, um, in his attempt to, to help us get it, he takes a number of Greek words, synonyms for power, and he stacks them one on top of the other. It, it is so awesome that we just have to take some time to look at those words. So, biblical word study. Um, if you can handle that this early in the day. Look again at Ephesians 1.19, because all of the words he uses are stacked in this one verse. He says here that that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted. Um, now, the order of the Greek words he used are better seen in the International Standard Version. In fact, we're going to put it up here so you can see it. He uses four words to describe this power that apparently is ours. And the sequence in which he uses them are reflected in this version. Look at what it says in the ISV, verse 19. And the unlimited greatness of his power... For us who believe, according to the working of his mighty strength. Paul is going nuts trying to explain this concept to us. So let's look at these terms. Um, So the first word Paul uses um, is the word that is translated power in Verse 19. I'm going to need a little bit of your participation for us to get through uh, this word study together. But the word power that he uses is taken from the Greek word dunamis. Can you say dunamis? That's fantastic. Yes. Um, It's where we get the word dynamo or where we get the word dynamite. Now, some of you might not remember JJ from good times, but you just need to know it's where we get the word dynamite dynamite from. Here in this passage, this word is being used to speak of raw power. It's describing potential or untapped power. 
dunamis, great word. The word is not concerned with whether that power actually does anything as much as it's concerned with what that power can do, its potential, its capacity, its ability. It's a word you might use in speaking of a power plant. Well, you can say that power plant has, you know, dunamis, enough power to light up the entire city. Now, whether or not it actually does it is beside the point. It can You might use the word to speak about a battery. That battery could power up a portable DVD player, but right now it's just sitting in a packet on a rack in the store. But it could power up a DVD player. Dunamis. It's speaking of raw, potential, unproven power. Uh, The second word he uses um, is translated here, working in the ISV. It's the Greek word energeia. Let's try that one. Energeia. Try it again. Absolutely. And that was actually pretty good because it's the Greek word from which we get the English word energy. And so if you had said it with a little less than that, it would have been a little bit awkward for everybody. But if dunamis is raw power, then energeia is revving power. It's the idea of power that's rumbling and intensifying and building and getting amped up and ready to spill over. In fact, the word that's used in Greek insinuates that power is exploding in itself and it's just looking for a way to explode out. Um, my daughter uh, is growing in uh, her self-awareness, which is uh, pretty cool, um, and sometimes it's, it's something else. But um, she'll often sit at the dinner table, and she'll be rocking, and she'll be wiggling, you know, and she'll just be kind of giggling and, and chuckling and just really just wiggly. And we'll give her like an awkward look and she'll look at us and she'll say, I'm sorry, for some reason I'm hyper. I'm really, really hyper. Can I go and play? Can I go and play? Energeia. It's a word that we might use to speak about a sugared up kid who is just revving and, and antsy and on the edge and it just can't wait to go and jump on some breakable furniture and swing off of a chandelier. That is energeia. Gaia, it's fascinating when you think about it in this context, as we'll see in a little bit. If dunamis is potential power, then energeia is poising power. It's just sitting on the edge, just ready to go. Can I go and play now? Energeia, revving power. But then... Paul stacks another power synonym um, on top of this one. And it's a word that's translated might or mighty. Um, It's taken from the Greek word kratos. Let's try that one. Kratos. Yes. Um, From which we get the English word autocrat. From the Greek word kratos. If dunamis... It is this raw 
power. And if energeia is revving power, then kratos is ruling power. Really interesting. It speaks of power's capacity to conquer or to subdue something else. Um, You know, Alexander the Great is rumored to have been depressed at the tender age of 25 because poor guy had conquered every nation on the planet. And he was sad because there was no more nation or empire to kratos, to conquer, to subdue, to over. Power. That's what this word means. And if dunamis is potential power, and if energeia is this idea of poising power, then Kratos Church is straight up pummeling power. It just wants to beat somebody or something up to subdue, to conquer something. So it's really interesting, right? Because we know that dunamis can do something, but what it can do, we don't know quite yet. And we know that Energeia is like revving to, to do whatever that something is, but we still don't know what that thing is. And then Kratos shows up and says, hey, just so you know, that dunamis back there has the power to conquer and to crush and to subdue. It gives some definition to dunamis, which hasn't yet done anything quite Yet, really fascinating. I geek out over Greek sometimes, but not often. Didn't do great um, in the class. So dunamis is energeiaing to kratos something. Power is poising to pummel something. Raw power is revving up to rule something. That's the cocktail of words that the Apostle Paul is piecing together. And then he throws one more word in the mix. It's the word strength here in this passage. The Greek word iskus. Like discus without the D. Let's try it. Iscus. Let's try it one more time because for a power word, that was okay. Iscus. Okay. Um, I have no idea what English word is taken from the Greek word iscus. It doesn't matter. Uh, The word carries the idea of physical force that's imposed on something. And so if dunamis is raw power and energeia is revving power and kratos is ruling power, then this idea of iscus is released power. Dunamis done got out now. That's what iscus means. Potential power that's now actually pummeling Something. If dunamis is potential power, energeia is poised power, kratos is pummeling power, iscus is proven power. I used to be the most dynamite dad when my kids were younger. I had a lot of dunamis in my home. I was awesome. Because I'd tell my kids anything that I could potentially do, <laughs> uh, you know, and they would believe me. 
Dad, do you think he can run faster, you know, than this? And do you think he can beat Usain Bolt in a race? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I've never raced him, but <laughs> I think I could. Dunamis. Now, I'm not lying to my kids, just omitting the fact that I'm driving <laughs> at the time. Um, you know, or they would ask me some other question about, you know, can you do a backflip? Yeah, I can do a couple. But they got wiser. And they're like, Iskus, Iskus, show us. In fact, we cleared out some backflip space right here with some padding. Go ahead, Dad. Go to bed. It's a school afternoon, you know. Um, but my kids got to this point where they're like, oh, potential power, whatever, prove it. That's what Iskus is doing for dunamis. It's proving power. Paul paints a compelling picture of words to describe the kind of power that's ours in Christ. But he's not done yet, because for some reason or another, Paul's not quite sure that we get it. Because we know that it can conquer, but we still don't know exactly what it can conquer. And so he illustrates it by picking the single most impressive expression of power ever. And he says, let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you know the story. On that fateful Friday, Jesus Christ hung lifeless on this Roman torture device called a cross. Outside the city gates of Jerusalem, his body had been beaten so brutally for hours and hours and hours. And because he was the number one enemy of the state, they wanted to take no chances. To make sure he was dead, they pierced his heart with this soldier's javelin. No chance there would have been an open casket for Jesus' funeral had they granted him the decency of affording him one. The Bible says he was beaten so badly that he wasn't just disfigured beyond recognition of who he was, but he was disfigured beyond recognition of being a human being. Jesus was beaten up. He was dead, dead. If the Romans were good at anything, they were good at killing people dead. His brain activity had ceased. His heart wasn't beating. Breath had left his lungs. A spirit had left his body. Jesus was dead. In fact, I think one of the reasons the Bible gives us some gruesome details about the crucifixion is because it doesn't want to run the risk that we might mistake the fact that on that fateful Friday, Jesus was dead, dead. He was physically, medically pronounced dead. And you know what I picture? This is just my crazy imagination. On that Friday, as Jesus hung lifeless on the cross, I picture dunamis of God standing at a vertical distance, just watching. Now we know it can do something, but we don't know quite yet what it can do. But it's Friday, day one. And then the clock ticks on. And now it's the next morning. And I don't know about you, but I picture at the breakfast table, Energeia is sitting there, just revving and rumbling and wiggling and and giggling and sugared up and hyper. Revving and rumbling. Can I go now? Can I go now? I have so much energy to get out. And it's staring at Kratos. And Kratos, he's standing over there and he's just rolling up his sleeves. Mm -hmm. And sharpening swords. He's just ready to pummel someone. But it's Saturday. 
as Jesus' body lies in that cave in the dark. Two. Then Sunday comes. Now, I'm sorry to spoil it if you're a parent who thinks that you're the one who invented the don't make me count a three line. Mm -mm. There was a father, a heavenly father, who came up with that line that Easter Sunday morning. Now, listen, I don't know what time it was. I like to think right as the clock struck 12, God said three. And when he did, Iscus runs into the room, grabs a hold of Dunamis, who grabs a hold of Kratos, who grabs a hold of Energeia, and all heaven breaks loose, y'all. This foursome of power is released and rushes straight to that cave in which Jesus' lifeless body lay. And when it hit that place, it pummeled death so hard, death got knocked out, had to let Jesus go. And Jesus said, and he took in a sip of life and he woke up from the dead. He shook death off like a pop song. Now, again, you know, I don't know if he whipped death and nay-nayed the grave. I'm not, I wasn't there. And listen, I'm not all up with contemporary culture. But here's what I do know. Is that when it had done its work, Jesus, who was dead, dead, is now alive, alive. He's risen from the dead. Now, you would think that this power cocktail, this quad of powers, would be like high five, mission accomplished, our power has raised Jesus from the dead. But Energeia is still like, there's more stuff and Kratos says, let's keep pummeling people. Let's keep pummeling people. And that's what Paul means in the rest of the chapter. In fact, look at what he says in verse 20. This is awesome. He says, he exerted so much power when he raised Christ from the dead, that it ended up seating him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and above all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way almost as if god's dunamis wasn't satisfied to have just raised jesus from the dead it went crazy and started looking for any possible power that it could kratos that it could overwhelm until it had overwhelmed every single power and jesus sat down at the right hand of god almost as the ultimate alexander saying i have no more powers to conquer and what paul is saying is that's how much power i'm speaking of when i say that if you are a follower of jesus christ all of that power is yours. Wait, what? How much power, Paul? The exact same amount that conquered death, all its friends, and kept conquering and conquering until there was no power in heaven, on earth, visible or invisible, left to conquer that much power church is yours it's at work in you even as you sit here if you're a believer right now the power that raises dead and dying things 
in you. It's already there. The power that conquers any power that seeks to conquer you or to keep you away from living life fully in the freedoms and in the riches and in the supply and in the forgiveness that's yours. That kratosing power is at work in you. It's yours. It's very fascinating that when Paul says in verse 19 that this power is for us, do you know what word he uses for power? It's interesting. He uses the word dunamis. Dunamis. Which explains how the church can be a power plant with so much potential and possibility to conquer, to live in victory, and yet end up sitting in a packet on a shelf in a store called a church service. Because we have power, but it's raw power. And the tragedy in the church is that for so many of us, raw power is never released. It's never realized. We have conversations where potential power remains just that. Where we are more than conquerors, but we seem to be conquered by more and more things. Where we are supposed to reign and be seated with Christ, and yet we continue to be subdued by things that he subdued and has placed under his feet. It's fascinating. So the question is, if this power really is ours, how can we experience more of this conquering power? How can we really live as if every other power is under the feet of Jesus Christ, who again we are seated next to in the heavenly realms. How do we get victory in these patterns of failure that seem to be kratosing and pummeling us? How do we move from this form of godliness that denies its power? We want to talk about that for a little bit, and we want to be so simple in our approach to this. You know, in the world of electrical power, uh, there are what are known as conductors and what are known as insulators. And I venture to say, you live your life as one or the other most of the time. Um, conductors are materials or environments that allow the current of electrical power to flow freely to wherever they need to go. It's a conductor, like a copper wire or water or, interestingly enough, the human body. It's a conductor. Um, an insulator is just the opposite of that. It's materials or an environment that obstruct and prevent the current of electrical power from flowing freely to wherever it might need to go. And I do. I think that's how it works for us. Because if we're all power plants who house the dunamis, this potential power, then I wonder if our experiencing that power 
doesn't come down to whether we are conducting or insulating this power that is ours. And so we just want to take a few moments um, to go really basic and talk about uh, two conductors and two insulators for the power of God to be more experienced and to move more freely in and um, through us. Now, granted, there are so many conductors the scriptures give. I mean, so many insulators, but we just want to touch on a couple. Here are a couple of conductors that I think will help us experience more of this power. Uh, Number one is, I do, I believe we need to seek the Spirit. Uh, We touched on this last week, but we need to seek the Spirit. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse Uh, Luke 11, 9 through 13. He says, we'll have it up here. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will. If I was an underliner in the Bible, I would underline that one. I still feel a little bit antsy about that. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I don't know if you're getting the hint that it will be done. For everyone, no exceptions, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened to him. And then Jesus gets more clear. He uses this illustration. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? That's not cool. Don't do that. Verse 12. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. Um, Again, not awesome. Verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, here's his question. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more do you think God will allow the presence and effectiveness and experience of the Holy Spirit to be real in you if you ask? He says, I will, I will, I will. Everyone who asks will, will, will. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can take this raw power And apply it to the places in our lives where it's needed the most. See, because it's tempting to go, I've got the power. And think I can just kind of run off and do whatever I can and do whatever I want to with this power. But no, we have the power, but it's the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and revelation to apply this power to our lives. What Jesus is saying here in Luke 11 is that you can have as much of the Holy Spirit working in those ways as you seek. It's really compelling. So I'm telling you that if you are not in the constant habit of seeking the Spirit of God, I can bet you are not in the constant habit of seeing the power of God at work in your life. It's just my bet. Feel free to email me, tell me that, no, that's not true. I never seek the Spirit. But I'm constantly experiencing the power applied to dead places and applied to conquering places in me. If you do not intentionally carve out crying out time in your day, you will be a power plant that never lights anything. 
Because it's the spirit who makes the power real to us. We need to ask. We need to seek. We need to knock. Holy Spirit, make this power real in me. Holy Spirit, apply this power to my inability to control my temper. See, because you've been trying a whole bunch of strategies for a very long time. But it's a spirit who takes power and applies it to that place where you cannot control yourself in certain areas that are destroying you and even hurting the people around you. Holy Spirit, please apply your power to my dying kingdom dreams, things you stirred in me that I've just gone. I don't even dream anymore. Would you please reawaken, enter into the tomb of those dead places and stir them back to life, seeking the Spirit. Please send some kratos current to those places where lust is subduing me and it's been winning for years and years and years. Would you please today apply fresh dose of your power to that area so that I can live with victory over this area. Please give me power over this dependence on these pills. Please give me the power to be courageous enough to to go and take the steps I need to, to be better, to be whole. Seeking the Spirit is a powerful conductor of power. He's the only one who knows how to apply not just the power, but all the spiritual blessings that we've been looking at and will continue to see. Are you seeking the Spirit? And this is not a one-time thing. This is a pattern of seeking. Jesus was notorious for this. He would sneak off to seek his father. And this ought to be something that we pattern into our lives. Um, Second conductor is to wait in stillness. Stillness is a major power conductor. In fact, as we'll see here in a second, stillness is just the other side of seeking. Those two go together. Look um, at a couple of verses. Psalm 5, verse 3. We'll have this up on the screen. It says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. Because I do this in the morning. This apparently was a psalmist's time. In the morning, I lay my request before you, and then I wait in quiet expectation. I wait expectantly. Micah 7, verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait in stillness for my God, my Savior. My God will hear. Me. This is such an interesting thing, this concept of stillness, because here's what we, we often do. <clears throat> In the moments when we might seek the Lord and ask him, please make your power real. Please apply this thing to my life. No sooner have I sought the Lord and I am off. I will ask him, but I'll never sit around long enough to wait expectantly for his Response, I file my request and then I rush off. The posture of the psalmist and the prophet was, no, 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 no. I lay my request and I...
I wait in stillness. Now, this doesn't mean these guys didn't get anything else done. It meant that they would intentionally carve out time to just remind the Lord, hey, remember how I'm seeking you about that thing and you said I would find? And that's what Jesus means, by the way. He says, seek and keep seeking and you will find. For me, I kind of sit and then I'm done. And I wonder why I don't see the Lord moving in these powerful Ways I just don't create the space in the stillness to expect and to see what I've sought of the Lord. It was really interesting. A number of years ago, uh, my first trip to Haiti, um, it was profound for me. Um, I, I can't remember, honestly, the truth is, since that trip a number of years ago, I can't remember since then experiencing the presence and the power of the Lord the way I experienced it there. And the reason, I think, was obvious. It was an imposed stillness. It was mandatory space. I had to. I got to Haiti, and I don't know if you knew this, but that was shoddy internet service on my phone. I couldn't talk to anyone. It would get to be nighttime, and the generator would go off, and it was just dark. I had nothing else to do. And I found myself interacting with the Lord, and waiting, and carving out space to just be with him. And he started to respond in ways I hadn't experienced for a very long time. And then I flew back, landed in Miami, and my reception came back. And it felt like I disconnected from this power source. There is something so profound about carving out stillness and space where I can expect and anticipate and wait for the Lord to show up. And this is difficult for us. So the question for you, because if you don't unplug from the noise and impose stillness and waiting space on your soul, then you never know the power the Spirit wants to bring If I'm not willing, that's the interesting thing about tombs. They're really quiet, really dark. And the spirit seems to be attracted to those silent, quiet places where I'm just waiting for him to count to three. And sometimes it takes a while. But what stillness is carved into your life? What is the place that you set aside to say, I've been asking you for this, and I'm looking, and I'm waiting in still expectation. Um, Here are a couple of um, insulators um, that I think prevent the power of God from being realized and being made real in us. Here's some recommendations um, biblically. If we want to see more of Um, the power of the Lord working in us. Here's the first one. Um, We've got to stop being strong. It's a strange thing, but we've got to stop being strong. Strength, strangely enough, is one of the great insulators for the movement of the power of God in us. Paul makes a profound statement in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Look at what he says. He says, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect. Where? In weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's power is made perfect. In other words, it's more fully realized in places of Weakness. I think one of the reasons I don't experience more of the power of God is I am entirely too obsessed with being strong. And by being strong, I mean being seen as strong. I mean, even my wife, who I live with and who knows me better than anybody else, I want her to think I'm a superhero. I want you all to think I have my stuff all sorts of together. And so I may have issues and places of struggle, but I don't want you to know about them. Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) In order to be a superhero, sometimes you've got to front like you're vulnerable. And so I'll tell people, I've got issues, man, and I'm struggling. But I have no intention of telling you or showing you my wounds or my scars or my areas of struggle. Because I want you to think I'm strong. The problem with that is that strength is an insulator against the power of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense. The Spirit is standing at a distance saying, well, clearly you don't need me, Mr. Superhero. And that's what we do in the church. We are so, so obsessed with convincing each other we've got things together and we're strong and our marriage is legit and I'm soaring in the Lord. We don't want to admit our weakness. And the Spirit's power is stifled by our pride insulation. If there are areas in your life where you are experiencing weakness, maybe even experiencing defeat, and you have insisted on shutting everybody else out, so nobody knows because you don't want anybody to think you're weak. Or maybe you've shared it before, but you can't share it again because now people know you still are weak. And you're like, "Mm mm-mm. I'm going to front like I'm strong. I can almost assure you, you will not experience the power of the Spirit in those places. And that's why Paul says, so now I'll tell people about my weaknesses. Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. What it would be like for the church to be vulnerable. And I think that's what James means when he says, hey, confess your sins to one another. So you can seek with one another, pray for one another, and experience wholeness and healing. If there are areas where you are finding you are being kratosed, you are being overpowered, I want to encourage you, talk to someone and continue to communicate areas of weakness. And even as I say that, it's one of those things that makes me hyperventilate a little bit. Because I don't know if you knew this, but pastors have things together. And uh, at least we would love for people to believe that lie. And so I know this applies profoundly to me. Are you willing to express weakness, particularly to others? And the last one is really simple. We need to quit the self-reliance. Quit the self-reliance. One of the curses of... uh, living in a resourced culture like ours, is that we have so many options. We don't need the Holy Spirit. We don't need his power. That's part of the problem. Um, When we feel subdued or we feel powerless or we feel our weakness or we become aware of places in us that are dead or dying, 
I have the phone. I can pick it up and then just chat with somebody. I can post on Facebook and vent my issues to people and feel a little bit better as each comment comes in. I have options. If I'm feeling a little sad, I can binge on Netflix or I can go out on a coffee date um, with somebody. I have options, things I can rely on. I can read a book. Okay, maybe not me, but people can read books and go to the gym, other people. Moments when we need to seek and be still, we just run off to our many other options. And we will legitimately whine about the fact that we don't see more of the Lord's power. We don't see more of the Lord's presence. Well, are you willing to quit the self-reliance and sit in that achy, painful place and wait in stillness for him to show up and apply his power to that dying place? No, forget it. I'm not waiting. I'm going for a career change. I have so many options. LinkedIn has so many possibilities. Why do I have to worry about the dead dream in me when I have options? And for many of us, we will either choose the spirit's power ignited in us or we'll be self-reliant and we will become insulators and we will wonder why we talked for years about the potential and about the possibility to pummel and to reign and to experience victory, but we never actually did. And so... The question is, in moments of weakness, vulnerability, hurt, ache, what do you run to first? And I think Jesus would say, seek, seek, and then wait. But it hurts to wait. It hurts to wait. Yes, but if you wait, I will count to three, and I will come. And I will apply this power that is... Yours. And so, Lord, I do. I pray that we would believe that this power is ours. And, Lord, I pray, because many of us will acknowledge there are areas in our lives where we are just continually experiencing defeat over and over. And yet, Lord, you've given us your power, your conquering power. Lord, the answer is not trying harder. The answer is seeking more. So, Lord, help this to be a church full of people who seek you, who carve out time to seek your spirit, to invite him to apply power and apply truth to our lives. Lord, forgive us. We run to so many things that are not you first. And please do a work in us that causes us to rush to you. And Lord, help us to be humble enough to be vulnerable, to share with other people so you'd meet us even in those places of expressed weakness. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.